Hey everyone, welcome to Warm Regards, a podcast of climate change conversations. I'm Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine, and it is summer here finally. I'm so excited um, to experience just a little bit of, of climate change, if you will allow me to make that really bad joke, um, here in Maine because we had just such a long winter, it felt really brutal. And of course, the changing seasons, the end of the semester, all of these things are good opportunities for reflection and just pausing and kind of taking stock. Like, what did we get done this year? What didn't we get done this year? Where were we this time last year? And it occurred to me as I was preparing for today's show that we are now coming up on the two-year anniversary of Warm Regards. This time in 2016, we were, <laughs> so many things were different. Uh, we had not, you know, we were in the thick of the 2016 election. Um, Andy, Eric Holthouse, and I were still thinking up what this show would look like. And of course, so much has changed since then. Some, some good, lots bad. And you have been here with us through all of it. And I just want to say that we really appreciate you as our listeners, you sticking with the show as we've kind of gone kind of all over the place with what the show sounds like, with who's on the show. Um, but also, this is a good opportunity, too, for us to, as a podcast, kind of take stock about what we're trying to accomplish with Warm Regards. And we're really dedicated to keeping this as a conversational podcast that really tells the human side of, of climate change, tells the stories from the front lines, maybe from behind the headlines or even the, the stories that the headlines are leaving out. And that's something we're definitely committed to doing as we go forward to tell more of those marginalized voices and to really show more of that human side. So we're really excited about that. And we have some other changes uh, that are coming to the podcast as well, including some, some fun new segments that uh, we'll unroll one of them today. But also, one of the biggest shakeups is we are going to be bringing on some new voices as a set of rotating co-hosts. And I'm really excited to unveil these co-hosts to you in the coming weeks and months. But the very first of them is with me here uh, in the virtual studio today, definitely not here on the East Coast. Um, and that is Dr. Ramesh Langani. He's an associate professor of biology at Doan University in Nebraska. And I first met Ramesh on Twitter where I think I meet most people nowadays. Um, and uh, he invited me to be a part of this amazing science communication workshop where I gave a, a talk all about storytelling and science communication, which should come as no surprise to anyone who listens to the show because I really love the importance of, of storytelling as a communication tool. And I also like to go on and on and on, uh, which is a form of storytelling, I guess. So... With us in the studio today is uh, Ramesh, and I, I asked him before the show how he would like me to explain what he does, and he did such a great job of, of explaining that, uh, that I'm going to let him do it for us. So, Ramesh, I'm so excited to have you with us. Um, it's such a pleasure to have an excuse to chat with you um, more about science and science communication and climate change, and uh, just welcome. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, yeah, it's a, I'm just super excited that we could get involved, that I could get involved with this project. It's super important um, to communicate more and more about climate change. And um, yeah, I'm glad that the Twitter friendship has developed into something more. Uh, and um, 
So yeah, so what I do is uh, my background is in carbon and nitrogen cycling in grasslands. And while that might sound a little dry, um, ultimately that has led me into trying to understand how climate change impacts um, grassland ecosystems. So I, as, as you noted, I'm here in, out in the Midwest, so there's a lot of agriculture, there's a lot of uh, there's a shrinking amount of prairie, but uh, climate change is impacting that those ecosystems uh, as well. And so it's not just rising sea levels. Um, there are prairie impacts. And so my students and I study those impacts uh, here in Nebraska. And particularly, we're focused on the impacts of climate change mitigation tools. So uh, if we're going to stop climate change through a variety of methods, what are the... I, talk about it like what are the side effects of those mitigation practices. So I love what you just said there because I'm so glad to have you on the show for several reasons. One, just because you're an amazing science communicator. You've got some cool projects going that we'll talk about later. You're also this great educator. You're doing some really innovative stuff with technology in the classroom. And also because I think it'll be great to have a carbon expert on the show that is definitely not my strong suit. So I'll probably have some really laughably basic questions for you. Um, and also just your interest in mitigation, which I think is so important. And we often talk about kind of climate adaptation versus climate mitigation. And can you talk a little bit about what, what really drew you to, to study the mitigation side of things? So the mitigation aspect of climate change, I think, is really, really important for students to try to grapple with. And I'm at a small undergraduate institution where I don't have graduate students. All of my research is driven by my undergraduates. And so the idea of mitigation and, quote unquote, solving the problem, I think, has an appeal to an undergraduate audience. And so when I've talked to my students uh, through their research projects, they really buy into the idea that we can reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in our environment uh, through these mitigation practices. So the mitigation practice that I um, focus on is this stuff called biochar. And biochar is basically burnt plant material. And that burnt plant material uh, is really just carbon that was once in the atmosphere that the plants sucked up. And what's interesting about biochar is when you, when the plant sucks it up, that's great. Uh, if you don't burn that material, that plant material falls on the ground, it decomposes, and that carbon is released right back up into the atmosphere. So it's really those plants are not really slowing climate change all that much because that carbon it gets decomposed right back up into the atmosphere. But when you burn it and make it into biochar, these really, really high temperatures, that carbon that was in that plant material essentially becomes resistant to decomposition. That carbon gets locked up. And so if you put that in the soil, that soil is now storing carbon for really long periods of time. And that carbon was once in the atmosphere. And so, again, it's a mitigation tool that I think students can really grapple with because they can feel the biochar in their hand and they can say, I'm holding... Mm -hmm. 10 grams of carbon in my hand, and I'm going to put that in the soil, and it's not going to go anywhere. So I am fighting climate change. So there's a couple of cool things there. So the first one, when you say, for those, uh, I guess, listeners who might not 
we, we might have heard this term mitigation, but it might not necessarily be uh, super clear. We're really talking about reducing the impacts or the magnitude of climate change, right? Right, right. And exactly. then versus adaptation, where we just try to like find new ways of living in this warmer, you know, maybe drier or wetter or weirder world. Right. Um, and then, so then when you talk about uh, biochar, the first thing I think of as a, is, as a paleoecologist, we often reconstruct the fire history from these fragments of charcoal that we find in lakes and bogs. And in fact, you can find pieces of, of fossilized charcoal that goes back, you know, tens of millions of years. We've basically been having fires on earth ever since uh, we've had, you know, plants on land. And so that to me, like that's an instant connection where I'm like, yes, I can totally see the fact that that carbon stays in that charcoal and I can find it thousands or tens of thousands or millions of years later means it really is, it's really not going back. It's not being broken down by bacteria or fungi or something. It's really just staying in that charcoal. Yeah. And, and so, and, and the fact that that charcoal and the carbon in that charcoal is quantifiable makes it, you know, you can put a number on it. You can say, I'm like I said, they're holding 15 grams of carbon or 10 grams of carbon. And uh, I think some of some estimates on biochar lifespan or something like 2000 years. But the fact that you're finding uh, charcoal in much older deposits speaks to just the idea of long term carbon storage and carbon storage in the dirt and uh, the opportunity that uh, charcoal presents as a way to lock up carbon that was once in the atmosphere for long periods of time. So, so, the, all right, so I have some questions then. Sure. The first, the first one is, what's burning? Like, where's, what's, what's, where's the charcoal coming from? Right. Okay. So, you know, as a, as an ecosystem ecologist, I joke around with my students that I don't see plants and animals. When I look at an ecosystem, I just see, um, boxes and arrows full of elements. <laughs> and so animals are just piles of carbon and nitrogen. Trees are just piles of carbon and nitrogen. And so, um, what we do is when we take plant material, this can be anything, any plant material. So uh, it can be leftover corn husks. It can be dead grass. It can be um, wood. I, I actually use coffee grounds in my lab. Oh, cool. Um, and largely because it's free from Starbucks. So, uh, but really that carbon, that those coffee grounds are just plant material, right? That was carbon that was once in the atmosphere. And so what I do is I take that plant material, I take those coffee grounds, and I cook them uh, through a process called pyrolysis. And that's a fancy word for heating something up really, really hot with very little oxygen, little to mm. no oxygen. So I literally take some, some coffee grounds, I put them in a soup can, and I put, put that in a kiln, and I heat that kiln up to 400 degrees centigrade, and if not hotter. And so uh, what comes out is this black charcoal material that now can be thrown anywhere, basically. And so uh, I, oh, go ahead. I was going to say. So I think that answers my other question, which was, you know, we we hear that biomass burning can be a source of CO two in the atmosphere, but it sounds like the the method that you're using prevents that from happening. So you're the produce producing the biochar itself is not itself a source of carbon. Yes and no. Um, so like any climate change solution, there are trade-offs. And so when I burn this 
coffee, you lose about 50% of the mass just outright. And so, and I haven't had a student do this yet, but I use a kiln that is obviously plugged into the wall using electricity. And so there's a carbon footprint for that as well. Um, but the real gain is if I were to take those coffee grounds and throw them on the soil, they would decompose about, let's even say five, 10 years, all of that carbon would be right back up in the atmosphere. And so even in the production of biochar, even though you lose 50% of the carbon in the initial production, the 50% that is left is not going to go anywhere once it's put in the soil. And ah, so, so the, the math works out in the end. Right, right. Um, it becomes a net, uh, you know, it reduces the net emissions. And, um, and like I said, one thing I have to do is do the math on uh, how much electricity the oven is using. And so how much carbon is the oven putting out versus biochar and carbon produced. Um, so I have to, I have yet to do that math with one of my students. That might be a nice small senior research project to see if there's a relationship there in terms of, is there a threshold of time and temperature? That's really cool though. I mean, what, what I like about it is that you're, you're also teaching students that we can, there are things that we can do, right. That, that mitigation doesn't just ha have to happen at the level of, you know, large scale institutions or, policymakers who, who may or may not be actually doing anything, right? That so many of the students that I talk to are really savvy about climate change. They've grown up as a climate change generation. They want to do something about it. Um, they're frustrated that their leaders, their parents, et cetera, are, have, have done very little. Um, and they, they often can feel kind of hopeless. Um, but honestly, I actually find that my generation and older tend to be the more like negative folks and that the students are the ones who are really like, let's roll up our sleeves. Like, what can we do? Um, you know, this, this is a solvable problem. You guys haven't done anything about it. So we're going to pick up the slack. And I just love that you're giving them this opportunity to at least learn some tools and think outside the box and, and maybe, you know, take those Starbucks coffee grounds and do some good with them. Absolutely. And the other great thing about biochar, I'm, I'm really just a big biochar fanboy. Um, is that it, uh, it does a lot in the soil itself. So when you add it to soil, it not only stores that carbon, but it helps retain water in the soil. It helps retain nutrients in the soil. Um, and so it almost acts like a fertilizer. So theoretically, and there's a lot of work looking at, um, looking at this, if you were to apply it to cropland, do you actually see a boost in crop productivity with the addition of biochar? And so you almost get it working double duty because you're putting this in the soil and then it's making the crops suck up that much more carbon and potentially you are reducing fertilizer that's being synthetic fertilizer that is being put on the ground. So there's a lot of positives associated with biochar use. Ooh, and so that should go into your calculations, right? Because we know that fertilizer production, you know, often comes from fossil fuels and there's a huge carbon footprint in, involved in the production of a lot of, um, uh, fertilizers. And, uh, but one thing I was thinking about too, is the, when you talk about that, those charred soils or the charcoal in the soils, it made me think of terra preta. Um, is, are you familiar right, with that the, term? That, are those the Amazonian yeah. soils? Yeah. 
Yeah, they're these like, yeah, they, it's like Amazonian dark earth or mm-hmm. uh, it's called Indian black earth. And it, it's basically like these archaeological, there's archaeological evidence of these soils that are um, a byproduct of the like slash and burn indigenous agriculture. And uh, basically like the charcoal is stable for thousands of years and um, they, they also use like manure and some other, and some like uh, bone meal and other things, but they basically are in, enriching that Amazonian soil, which was, is very ancient soil. So it's not super fertile. And so for agricultural purposes, like the, t- the sort of slash and burn practice would add a lot of this charcoal into the soil. And you can still find these amazing uh, pre-Columbian soils, um, you know, that are in many cases were created thousands of years ago and it's still you know, super productive soil, which is really neat and still used by local farmers today. Like this isn't just an ancient practice, like locals and indigenous folks still, still use these soils. Right. And I think that's another benefit in that these practices, while technically, technically biochar, when you read about it in the, in the literature, you know, is talked about under, you know, low or no oxygen conditions. Um, just, burning biomass to that last piece of wood in your campfire, that blackened piece of wood in your campfire on a certain level is charcoal. It may not be the highest quality biochar, but, um, that's bio that is in some form biochar. And so I would imagine, and I'm no expert on this end of it, but those ancient civilizations were, you know, storing carbon, uh, just through their normal agricultural practices by adding that charcoal to soils. That's really cool. So did the idea of biochar originate from our understanding of this, you know, traditional ecological knowledge, or is this something that kind of was done independently and then the linkages were discovered afterwards? Or do you, do you even know? Um, so in the reading of the literature, they talk about sort of the first discovery of biochar type substances being these Amazonian dark earths. Um, but I think there was future work that sort of looked at it from a carbon storage perspective and its ability to um, mitigate climate change. So I think we've known about these soils for quite some time, um, but more in a basic soil functioning context and less in a carbon climate mitigation context until Uh, until fairly recently, I should say. Cool. So it's like a way to enrich the soil, but the carbon sort of benefits come later. Right. Um, Right. So to not that I don't want to like nerd out about biochar with you for a really long time. Um, but, uh, I'm just curious, like, how did you, so you introduced yourself as, you know, as a, as an ecosystem scientist who studies carbon and nitrogen cycling specifically in grasslands and the relationships with climate. So did you sort of come at your, I guess I'm trying to ask, how did you become interested in climate change as something that you wanted to pursue as a researcher? Like, did you, were you just really interested in those, like those, those piles and, and arrows and boxes out in nature? And then climate change just became kind of an interesting problem that was affecting your system. Or did you come at your, your love of ecosystem science through this, uh, this sort of like this knowledge that climate change is a huge problem and you wanted to find a way to contribute to that? So, the way I got, I didn't realize ecosystem ecology and looking at the world through boxes and arrows and piles of carbon was even a thing when I started looking into graduate school. The way I really approached ecology was 
growing up, I learned that planting a tree is good for the earth. And so I wanted to understand how planting, how trees establish themselves in grassland ecosystems. That was just something that was interesting to me. Um, what controls trees showing up in a particular spot? Um, and so when I went to graduate school, that's when I was really introduced to this intellectual framework of ecosystem ecology, of thinking about carbon and nitrogen cycling as a way to explain this tree invasion phenomenon or this tree establishment phenomenon. But once you start thinking about ecology from a carbon and nitrogen cycling perspective, you're bound to run into climate change. You're bound to run into how much carbon is coming into those trees, how much carbon is being released from those trees, and what are the other processes by which carbon is moving in and out of biological systems. And so you just, there's, you sort of have no choice but to run, when you're thinking about carbon and nitrogen cycling, to run sort of smack into the wall of climate change. Yeah, I really talk about why, you know, when people ask me why climate change, I often say because it affects everything. And I, and I love that idea of like, there's, there's really nothing you can study as someone who's interested in the world without running into climate change. And I actually, when I first got into ecology as a student, I was also not thinking about climate change. But even, even as a paleoecologist where, you know, the signal of Ice Age climate change is so strong, I was still more interested in the woolly mammoths and what they were doing on the landscape and how their extinction was affecting, you know, the world. And, um, and I, you know, I was thinking about the big charismatic animals. But then, like you, I just kept coming up against this need to uh, to, you, you can't understand anything that's happening without understanding it in the context of how the climate is changing. And um, and then, of course, as the predictions about climate change became more dire, it was just, it was really clear that, you know, everything that we're doing within our, our various disciplines has some connection to, to climate change, um, whether we're studying it in the past, like I am, or in the present, in the future, like you. And um, yeah, so it's funny because, like, you know, the, the, the trolls on Twitter will often describe climate change as something that we just made up to, you know, as a source of, of funding, which is super silly because I have way more questions that I, than I could ever possibly answer in my entire career. But also that I think it's really often more, more passive than that for many of us. Like we didn't necessarily all set out to find climate change in our research. I think climate change often found us. Right. I'm still looking for the mythical pool of money that the, to Scrooge and McDuck myself into uh, that is surrounding climate change and climate change research. So if you have a map there, I would borrow it at any time. But yeah, I mean, the other great thing about climate change, especially at an undergraduate level, is that it makes the students feel like they are working on something important. So if I just told my students, hey, guess what? We're going to study carbon and nitrogen cycling in prairies and whether or not trees or invasive grasses grow better or worse with and without burnt coffee thrown at them. I don't think they would have as much buy-in to why it matters. But climate change is something that, as you noted, they are the climate change generation. And so this is a way, to me, Climate change is a pathway into science, and biochar is a particularly accessible pathway into science and how to ask questions. Um, every year when I have my seniors graduate, 
we always end the year and not by not by design, but we almost end the year with we always end the year with I wish I could ask this question next. I wonder if um, this happens. I wonder if we changed this, what the data would look like. And to me, that's really the biggest gain of having my students study biochar and study climate change is that they are now asking the next question. That's really cool. So so you you research climate change. You also teach about climate change, and you're right in the heartland. Um, how close are you to the middle of of the United States? Pretty close, Pretty I'm guessing. Close. I think technically it might be in northern Kansas, but don't don't quote me on that. Um, uh-huh. We're pretty we're pretty close. We're pretty close. Yeah. And you're, you know, you study grasslands in a place where, I mean, I think I heard recently less than 1% of the prairie is left and most of it's, oh my gosh. Okay. I was hoping that was off by an order of magnitude. Um, And because most of it's been converted because these obviously very productive grasslands are very wonderfully productive agricultural areas. So you can probably see where I'm going with this. So what is it like talking about climate change in a place where so many people's livelihoods are, you know, really depend on some of the practices that, I mean, basically they're feeding the country, right? right. And with, with both the, the, you know, plant and ag- animal agriculture that that's happening in the heartland and how, um, what, you know, what's it like having teaching about climate change, talking about climate change, basically in the breadbasket of, of North America, um, where a lot of the things we talk about are also people's livelihoods. Right. So I talk about a number of my students come from agricultural backgrounds. So every class I sort of, I ask my 30 or 40 students in my introductory biology class, how many of you are tied to farming of some sort? And I don't know, more than 60% raise their hands. And so I tell them, I say, look, I'm not faulting anybody for becoming a farmer. I'm not faulting anybody for using fertilizer. What we have to think about when it comes to climate change is how is that going to impact somebody's pocket? And so denying the reality that climate change impacts agricultural systems is just not going to help anybody. So understanding the processes of both mitigation and adaptation are going to be really, really important to maintain an agricultural economy um, here in Nebraska. So I often use the example that, um, and I can't, I don't have exact proof of this, but I've heard that they are, that they, this group of mythical farmers is now growing cotton in Kansas. And cotton historically has been thought of as a Southern warm environment crop. And Nebraska is famously known as the Cornhuskers. And so I, I sort of put it to my students this way. I, I say, what if it got too warm in Nebraska to grow corn? What would that do to our economy? What if we had to switch over to cotton? Would we be the cotton huskers? What would, and, and I bring that up because the Cornhusker economy here, from the football team to the t-shirts to, um, you know, is really an is it's an iconic part of people's lives, and so shifts in that identity are going to have real impacts, both economically and culturally here in Nebraska. And so, I try to put climate change 
in in those terms that we can let the climate change they are just they're just consequences so nobody's blaming i try to when i talk to them about it i try to say here's the science here is the data that we know about what increased co2 is doing to the planet and that there are going to be biological consequences and that corn and soybeans are inherently a biological system and so the idea that those systems won't react to climate change is ultimately not going to help anybody Mm -hmm. moving forward it's it's similar to some conversations we have here where in Maine, people's identity, you know, as everywhere is really tied to place. And often how people are connected to place is through their natural resources. And, you know, here, the logging industry, you know, the fisheries industry, you know, maple syrup and tourism and all of those things are so tightly connected with the natural resources. And with the Gulf of Maine warming, you know, lobster are expected to move out of the region and what does it mean to be a Maine without without lobster right like what is the what does that do for our cultural identity let alone all the all the livelihoods of the people who really rely on the lobstering industry to you know to survive and so i think what's interesting is often when you talk to people on the ground who are working in these biological systems whether it's you know, I talk to foresters or I talk to people who do maple syrup. I mean, they're already, they're, they already know that this is happening because they're seeing it, right? And it's affecting their bottom line. It's affecting their livelihoods. And so it's, it's interesting to me just how on board, you know, a lot of these folks are, you know, because it's just, it's something they're experiencing in their day-to-day lives. And so oftentimes, you know, climate change mitigation uh, is is poised as something that's fighting against the economy, right? Like we can't do anything about climate change because it'll affect the economy. Right. But for so many people, they are, they're already, their, their, their livelihoods are already being impacted because we've, we're not doing anything. And what's really interesting, especially being out here in, in, you know, what would be considered a deep red state is we can talk to farmers and, and sort of the demographic that probably we unfairly group into one uh, into one category of, yeah, they don't buy into climate change. But when you talk mm-hmm. to them and say, what have you noticed that has changed over the past 30 years? They'll, they will bring up the fact that rainfall events are more severe um, or, you know, single events are more severe. They will. Yeah. They, so we just don't even mention the double C word mm-hmm. and you get buy into the idea of, well, how can we, use data to alter our practices? What information do you need in order to figure out planting dates? So I think if you talk to those individuals who, as you've mentioned, who are in it about patterns that they've noticed, oh, my planting date has shifted, my growing season has gotten longer. Um, Those, to me, those are tangible units that are much more accessible than temperature anomaly. Yeah. Especially because the way we talk about it is so often, you know, four degrees Celsius, which first of all, Celsius, you know, which we in the most people in the U.S. are not, you know, super attached to. And then secondly, you know, like we we won't notice a four degrees Celsius temperature difference just, you know, walking to work. Right. And so those temperature averages or those means are really hard to, um, I think for a lot of people to kind of wrap their brains around, but certainly people here in Maine who do ice fishing, they notice that 
the lakes freeze later, right? That that's definitely something that, you know, people are attached to, you know, we notice that we haven't had a white Christmas in a really long time, right? Those are things that, that people definitely have these strong cultural ties to. Right. Those local response variables, I think are, are really impactful, especially to sort of humanize the temperature trends that you see, because generally, right, the trends are that the minimum temperatures at night are really the things that are actually increasing. If I'm remembering my climate data correctly. So it's, and you have higher maximums, but you also have higher minimums, if I'm remember. I, mm-hmm. And so, but you can't put those into, you know, those, as you said, those numbers don't necessarily mean anything unless you have, yes, there's less ice on those lakes. But in Nebraska, that metric of icy lakes doesn't necessarily have an impact, but planting date does and growing season length does. Right. And so to put... Because that's the, yeah, it's the language of farmers, right? 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 And so I think mm-hmm. to put climate change into those tangible units on the y-axis, as I always tell my students, is really, really important. That's the one, uh, that's the one that goes up and down, by the way, the y-axis. The x-axis is the one that's flat on the bottom. I always think of the x marks the spot. <laughs> Sorry no, to interrupt. No, that's me being an inaccessible scientist immediately moving to think about graphs. It's all good. Um, So on that note, since I'll I'll stop us both before we go down the the lane of of like too much science too fast, um, I would love to kind of wrap up and move on to our next segment, which um, we'd love to start doing something which we used to do in the beginning of the podcast uh, in its its early days, um, but it's kind of dropped off a little bit which is to take a moment to riff off of something that's a current event or something we've seen in the news or maybe a new, a new stu- study or story. And the one that I think would, is such a great fit for today's discussion is this New York Times article that came out last month called Can Dirt Save the Earth? So Ramesh, as our soil slash biochar slash grassland slash carbon expert speaking from the breadbasket, can dirt save the earth? Um, I think so. No pressure. No, no, not at all. Uh, So I think dirt can save the earth. And I think about it, again, from the perspective of boxes and arrows. So as we till up soils for whatever purpose, let's say for our agriculture, we are releasing a whole lot of carbon that was in that soil into the atmosphere. And so if you think about that soil as a bowl full of carbon, we are pulling that carbon out, which means that there is space in that bowl to put that carbon back in. And so there's a lot of caveats. There's a lot of questions that still have to be answered in terms of what's the most efficient way to fill that bowl back up. What are the unintended consequences of filling that bowl back up? And how long, if we put a bunch of carbon into that bowl to beat this analogy to death, if we, um, (laughs) if we put a bunch of carbon, if we fill that bowl back up, how long does it stay there? And what's the best type of carbon to put in uh, to make it stay there as long as possible? So those sorts of basic research questions are still out there, but I think there's really an opportunity to utilize the natural processes and sort of the natural pools of carbon that exist that we have access to uh, to help mitigate climate change. So in this New York Times article, Um, They talk about the idea of carbon farming. And this, of course, touches on the idea that can you pay somebody 
to store carbon? Can you put, again, carbon back into that bowl? And is that worth some monetary value? And that becomes a difficult political and economic question. But from a strictly carbon going in and carbon going out perspective, I think you the answer is yes, that you can you can sort of uh, encourage individuals to store carbon through a variety of agricultural practices. What I think is really cool about that is it doesn't involve really space age, weird, potentially disastrous geoengineering approaches, right? It's just doing a, a lot of what we already do, but better and more thoughtfully. It's not, you know, taking carbon and pressing it from the atmosphere and pressing, pressing it into bricks and tossing it into the ocean or, you know, something like that, or, you know, seeding, you know, various chemicals in, in the atmosphere to kind of, you know, fix that carbon and, and draw it out. Right. Um, it, you're basically just taking a basic process like farming, which we've been doing for, you know, thousands of years and just doing it in a more thoughtful or refined way. Right. And I think it also relies on or incorporates the idea of thinking about the, the soils as a, as a finite resource, which I think if you talk to most farmers who have had to let lands go fallow because productivity goes down, I think they would buy into that idea that yes, soil mm -hmm. has a lifespan um, organic matter yeah. has a lifespan. And so why not integrate that frame of thinking into, well, how can we rejuvenate these soils so that they, we can, you know, almost reincarnate their activity with things like biochar with, and again, obviously I'm biased towards biochar, but there's a whole bunch <laughs> of uh, different ways to sort of uh, or being looked at ways to rejuvenate these soils and to stick more carbon in into those uh, sort of half-empty bowls or partially empty bowls of carbon. It's a very biocharming yeah, idea. Very, very good. Very good. Sorry, I've been trying to find some way of getting a biochar pun in somewhere, so I had to I had to do it. Couldn't wait to to the end. Um, so. Uh, one of the really, ex or one of the segments I'm super excited about uh, to round out and finish out our show is I'd love to introduce our new Ask Us or Ask Me, Ask Any of Us Anything segment. And when we say anything, we really mean anything. We, we may or may not actually answer your question. So, you know, use a little bit of discretion. Um, but the idea is that this is supposed to be a podcast about climate change conversations. Our goal is to humanize the science of climate change, the scientists, the journalists, and other folks on the front lines. And so you can get to know us a little bit better. You can get to know climate change a little bit better by asking us anything. And so you can... Uh, Find us on Twitter at Our Warm Regards. You can also email us at OurWarmRegards at gmail.com. Um, you can find Ramesh or me or Andy or, or anyone associated with the show, and we'll be put, putting out regular calls for, for questions for our AMA segment. But uh, to kick us off with uh, this episode's question, uh, we have a question submitted by uh, Dr. Karen James who is a, uh, she's K.E. James on Twitter. She lists herself as a rogue scientist, outdoors woman, feminist, uh, interested in genetics, evolution, molecular ecology, botany, space, citizen science. Uh, she's really amazing to follow. Um, and she's also a good friend and colleague and fellow Mainer. So a little bit biased for picking her for this first one. But um, she has a question for, for us, Ramesh. Right. 
She asks, what do your academic colleagues, uh, program officers, and reviewers think of your denialism-busting science communication work? So including this podcast, but all the other things we do. And that's such a great question because often I talk to scientists who are really interested or students who are really interested in doing more of this kind of outreach and they are hesitant because they're afraid that they might get looked down on by their colleagues, et cetera. Um, so I think this is such a great question. So Ramesh, you want to, how, how, how do your colleagues think of your, uh, of your various efforts? Sure. So I'll say that I have been nothing but strongly supported by my colleagues, by my university administrators. In fact, uh, the president of our college of our, excuse me, of our university, uh, is a former conservation biologist, and so um, he he's in he's he full he's in full throated support of 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 my science communication efforts, my climate denial busting efforts, and um, so it's been great to have that support. And I know that that is not necessarily a ubiquitous condition for all uh, scientists, um, but I feel like given the platform that I have uh, as an academic in the middle of the country, I feel both, uh, a response, I feel a responsibility to convey this information to my students, but I also feel like I need to take advantage of the fact that I'm in a supportive environment. So if I didn't convey this information, I didn't take advantage of this support. I feel like I wouldn't be doing my duty as a good citizen and as a good scientist. Oh, that's a great answer. And and kind of echoes what, what I feel too, because I'm at a public university. I'm at a land-grant institution, similar to where I went to grad school at the University of Wisconsin, where the Wisconsin idea um, of giving back to the broader community and sort of not, you know, has, has been around for over 100 years. So it's not just this ivory tower model. And so I think those of us who end up at you know, public land grant institutions, especially, um, and those with like university extension programs, I think often there's a lot more space and support for us to engage in these kinds of activities too. Um, so I think on that line, the idea of communicating to the public or doing some sort of public service via outreach is not, um, seen as a negative. It's, it's a, it's, it's only seen as a positive by my colleagues. And so I think, you know, if you're interested in doing this kind of work, but you're worried, about, you know, maybe it's too political or maybe people won't like that you're, you know, on social media or podcasting instead of writing one more paper. Um, you know, if you feel really inspired to do it, I would say go for it. And and also if you're, say, a grad student or someone who's interested in doing any kind of science communication efforts, um, I would say, you know, be savvy about the kinds of institutions you want to apply to. Like, you know, the, the your, is Stone private? private institution, Ramesh? yes. Yeah. So, so, and I went to a small private school for my undergrad and I would say that the kinds of work that we do, Ramesh and I do, I think is looked on really favorably in, in the kinds of institutions that we work with. And so you can definitely kind of find a good home for yourself. Um, and I would say that in terms of program officers, it's only been a net positive because, you know, at least with NSF, broader impacts are not just something that you, you know, you don't just check a box anymore. They really want this publicly funded research to be communicated or disseminated to the public in some way and be, and to be really benefiting. Um, and so being able to, sh to show that you have a track record of doing this kind of work is really helpful because a lot of people will just say, oh, I'll start a podcast as part of my broader impacts or, oh, I'll start a blog. But if you don't really know how to do that, or you don't have a sense of how it's being assessed, then you're probably going to get dinged in the reviewer process. So increasingly, there's a lot of support from 
funding agencies like the National Science Foundation as part of grants to find to have some way of communicating the broader impacts of your research out to um, to the rest of the world. And so that's for me, it's only ever been a net positive. I've never had anyone say, oh, you know, why are, why are you doing this? This is silly. This is foolish. It's a waste of time. And I, I know, pe- like Ramesh, I know people who've mm-hmm. had that experience, but um, I think partly it's just that we um, have been fortunate with our institutions and, and maybe even savvy in terms of the kinds of institutions that we applied to. Um, and, uh, and also just have really, you know, great collegial colleagues. If anything, I have the opposite problem in that this last semester, I had like six people ask me to give talks to their classes or their workshops on social media. And at a certain point, I'm going to have to be like, I don't have enough time to do this for everybody. Um, but uh, actually, Ramesh, before we go, which we really should mm-hmm. do, um, you have a science communication project that I love. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about it, um, just so our listeners sure. are aware. Um, so, yeah. So to take sort of a hard left uh, turn from biochar into more pure science communication, <laughs> um, a project that I started uh, is called uh, it's called the Thousand STEM Women uh, Project. And it's an attempt to sort of curate a library of short 90-second scientist introductions uh, specifically geared towards a sort of K-12, I would almost argue, middle school audience. And I started this because personally, growing up, I never really saw other scientists. Um, I grew up from, I'm from New York, and I both my parents are physici- physicians. Um, there were no ecologists running around my my daily existence. And so... Um, so I started this project because I think it's important for students, especially at the K-12 level, to see a variety of pathways to go into science. Because I think oftentimes those students think, I'm good at science, which means I need to go into the health care field. And so I wanted to humanize scientists and particularly female scientists for the litany of reasons that are out there. Um, about representation um, and particularly strong female role models um, for young girls in science. And so this 90-second video summary, uh, you know, we're at, I really want, it's called the Thousand Sim Women Project. I wanted to get to 1,000. We're at 27, so we are on our way. Um, but the other great thing is it becomes science communication practice for uh, those scientists that want to participate. So it's hard to sum up your science in 90 seconds and it takes practice and it takes skill. And, and so this becomes not only science communication benefit on the K-12 end, but it becomes professional development, I think, for the scientists that are involved with the project. That's awesome. I know we have a lot of scientists who listen to the show, so I encourage them if they want to get involved. Um, what's the best way okay, for them so to the do that? The best way for them to get involved is I almost daily tweet out a the hashtag 1000 STEM women. So the, the easiest way is if you just um, search on Twitter for the hashtag for 1000 STEM women, all in one word. And invariably in those tweets is a link to uh, the place where you can make the video. It's a, there's a link to sort of more detailed instructions about how to get involved. Um, so I've tried to keep the barriers as low as possible. So um the hashtag is probably the fastest way, especially coming out of the, you know, for someone listening to the podcast, you know, that might be on Twitter. Also, if they search hashtag 1000 STEM women, they should be able to get get in no problem. 
Awesome. So that is our show for the day. Um, I'm really excited to have Ramesh here. I'm so excited to slowly introduce all of our upcoming rotating co-hosts and uh, to talk about all of these exciting new projects going on. And also um, excited to have you guys ask us anything. So, I mean, you can ask us about what our favorite cake is. You can ask us you know, how we unwind after a tough day battling trolls on Twitter. Uh, you can ask us how the carbon cycle works. Um, we would love to hear from you. And of course, we would love to hear from you about the show, about guest ideas. If, you know, if you know someone that you or a project you'd like us to talk about, you can contact us, give us feedback at on Twitter at Our Warm Regards and also on Gmail at uh, ourwarmregards at gmail.com. And we are so excited to hear from you because this show is really meant to be um, about the people and we can't do it without you. So that's it for today, everyone. I hope you go out and enjoy some of the beautiful spring weather that is finally coming if you're in the Northern Hemisphere and the beautiful fall weather, I guess, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and with that, uh, I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful Memorial Day weekend. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.